Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasai Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hello. Uh, my name is Heidi Morrison, and I am an associate professor of history at the University of Wisconsin-La Crosse. I'm currently based in Tampere, Finland, where I'm speaking via Zoom to Dr. Hedy Viterbo, who is in London. We are here today to talk about Dr. Viterbo's 2001 book entitled Problematizing Law, Rights, and Childhood in Israel-Palestine, published with Cambridge University Press. Dr. Viterbo is a senior lecturer in law at Queen Mary University in London. Welcome. And I'm very delighted to be here and honored to interview you today about your amazing book. I want to start at the place uh, where problematizing law, rights, and childhood in Israel-Palestine seems itself to start at, which is why this topic does and should matter to people who are not Palestinian specialists. Um, as you make clear in the start of your book, uh, Israel's legal handling of young Palestinians appears in many countries' domestic politics and also international politics, making this book um, relevant to so many of us. And your book also deals with controversies about international law um, that we all um, care about, everything from the refusal to follow international law to how international law can, can be helpful. And the, the book deals with the topic of whether or not children's rights themselves are at stake. And it deals with the debate about the universal nature and model of childhood. And the book deals with so much. It also deals with um, the challenges. Uh, it challenges readers to rethink what law, rights, and childhood actually mean. Um, are these universal concepts? Are they socially constructed categories? Um, so, there are so many issues in, included in the book and we won't have time to get to them all today, um, but we'll try our best. And there's also issues in the book that relate to uh, international connections, um, such as the mistreatment of colonized people, racialized minorities, non-citizens uh, over the course of modern history. So where we will begin um, would be great if you could speak for us for um, a little bit about an overview of problematizing law, rights, and childhood in Israel-Palestine. And let us know its contributions to existing debates, academic and public. Uh, this should help lay the foundation for the rest of our interview, especially for listeners who have not yet read the book. So I'll let you take it from here. Sure, thanks. Um, Heidi, I'm, I'm delighted to be chatting to you. Um, and I should also uh, thank the Society for the History of uh, Children and Youth for um, hosting our chat. Um, so um, this book is a culmination of 14 years of research. Um, and it brings together uh, insights from different bodies of uh, knowledge. So that includes uh, what I call critical childhood studies, 
um, critical legal studies and um, critical human rights studies. And um, the book uses these uh, different theoretical frameworks um, to examine how um, discourses and practices of law and human rights relate to childhood. Um, so basically, I examine how these discourses and practices um, conceptualize childhood, um, how they construct it, um, and how they deploy it as a weapon. Um, and what the book also does is that it brings to light um, previously unknown findings about the relationship between childhood, uh, law, human rights, and state violence. And these findings um, are based on my analysis of um, various sources that have never been examined, including um, hundreds of uh, Israeli legal do documents that are not even publicly available. So just in reply to your question, I think I'll, I'll try to um, touch on some main themes and then we can try to kind of uh, delve deeper um, as we proceed with our conversation. So I think a, a useful point of departure maybe is the book's titled, title, uh, as you mentioned, um, Problematizing uh, Law Rights and Childhood in Israel-Palestine. So I think problematizing uh, for me, first of all, is about um, Kind of bringing into question the way um, or, or dominant thinking about um, about these issues, about childhood, about law, about rights. Um, the book is is heavily critical of Israeli authorities, uh, but it's it's also it also challenges um, dominant uh, criticisms and and the framing of these dominant criticisms of Israel and the way in which um, uh, these criticisms are informed by certain assumptions and narratives about childhood and law and, and human rights, uh, both specifically in the Israel-Palestine context, but also more broadly. Um, and I argue that, that these dominant narratives and assumptions are uh, simplistic, they're factually inaccurate, they're conceptually limited, and um, I think no less importantly, they're politically problematic and harmful. Um, and since these are narratives that we also find in various iterations beyond the specific context that I'm focusing on, um, I hope that this critique, and I, I try to make this critique applicable to various other settings. So that's a bit about kind of the approach that is embodied in the word uh, problematizing. Now, if we look at each of the, the main uh, themes, law, rights, and childhood, um, maybe I can say a bit about each of them. So, so law. Um, when I think about law, I try to conceptualize it in a way that goes beyond like narrow technical uh, understandings. I think of it as a battleground of competing interpretations, uh, con competing uses. So the question I ask is not so much whether law is being violated, um, as much as what law means, what it looks like, how it's being shaped and, and how it's being used. 
because the thing about the law is that it's inherently flexible and it lends itself to competing forces and competing uses. And for this reason, as I show throughout the book, it ends up being complicit in state violence. Um, so I, I, I kind of explore all of these themes in relation to various legal actors. And um, when I say legal actors, I'm, I'm thinking of, I think, what we would have in mind when we think of the law. So judges, legislators, the police, um, the prison system. But I'm also thinking about law more broadly as something that is shaped not only by professional lawyers. Um, it's a discourse. It's a field where um, all of us basically negotiate what it means to be lawful, lawless, illegal, and what and, and where all of us kind of play a role in responding to or um, um, informing various legal concepts or social legal concepts. So in that sense, legal actors also includes all of us, the general public, the media, culture, and so forth. So that's a bit about law. Now, in relation to rights, first of all, I, I should say, because I ju just talked about law, that a key um, characteristic of the rights discourse that I, that I analyze it's, is that it's highly legalistic, meaning that it, it fetishizes legal thinking and legal institutions and legal frameworks. And as a result, it's quite impoverished both conceptually and politically, and it marginalizes other ways, other political ways of thinking about the problem and about the solution. Uh, ways that may seem more political or more subjective or less objective, uh, less neutral perhaps. Uh, and what, what the book tries to do it, is not simply criticize the violations of rights. It's not, it's not just a human rights report in that sense, uh, but again, Similarly to my approach to law, I, I look at rights as, as a field um, that can be and, and is used by competing actors, including by the Israeli state. Um, so rather than saying that Israel just uh, flouts or disregards uh, um, international norms having to do with children's rights, I actually show the different ways in which Israel is increasingly using uh, these norms. And maybe we can talk more about that later. And I look at various human rights actors. So both Palestinian actors, um, Israeli actors, and also um, um, human rights organizations in other countries, uh, UN bodies, international NGOs, and so forth. Um, and the final theme is childhood, obviously. And here I'm talking about or interested in um, young people, so both Palestinian and Israeli, and, and the discourses and practices that um, seek to govern their lives. But I'm also interested in childhood much more broadly, not just in relation to the young people that are classified legally as children. So um, among other things, I, I look at the way in which childhood operates as a mode of control, a mode of governance, um, that disciplines, um, or at least seeks to discipline adults 
And here I'm talking not just about adults that are directly related to children or that have responsibility over children, like parents and teachers and social workers, because these are the sort of adults that we usually read about when we read about like law, rights, and childhood. I'm also interested in how discourses of childhood um, are preoccupied with other adults, such as adult prisoners that are not directly related to children, or just the adult Palestinian society as a whole. They too are shaped by categories and conceptions of childhood. And I'm also interested in the infantilization of uh, older people that are classified as adults. So, for example, um, in one of the chapters, I look at the way in which Israeli soldiers are treated and conceptualized as children, and I look at the political work that that infantilization does. Um, and um, Maybe one final point, which you touched on earlier, is really kind of the relationship between the global and local context. Uh, and that's something that the book tries to do, kind of contextualize the specific issues that I examine more broadly, both at the global level and at the local level. So um, what I could say about that is that at the global level, I'm, I'm looking at various um, uh, events and issues, both internationally and in various specific countries. Um, so the issues that I, I'm highlighting and trying to draw parallels with Israel-Palestine on connections and contrasts and comparisons, um, the sort of issues are issues that have to do with childhood and children. So images of childhood and children and, and perceptions of them, assumptions about them that are not entirely unique to Israel-Palestine, even though sometimes they manifest themselves or unfold in, in specific ways uh, in that uh, particular context. I'm also interested, as you mentioned, in issues having to do with colonization and racialization and the mistreatment of non-citizens of various groups. Um, I look at different historical continuities. So one of the things, for example, that I uh, try to explore is the way in which colonial British law has informed um, the current uh, laws that Israel implements um, both in the West Bank and, and uh, Gaza and within Israel's uh, pre-1967 borders. And I explain, I, I can, we can explain these later for, uh, in the benefit of uh, um, listeners who are not that closely familiar with Israel-Palestine. Um, and, and many other, um, there are many other global issues that um, I try to explore, such as uh, the, the kind of the limitations perhaps of psychological discourse, uh, the human rights uh, use of concepts such as trauma and loss and why it's, it can be very decontextualizing and um, problematic. Um, at the local level, I try to kind of go beyond law, rights and childhood and, and um, um, bring to light um, new insights about the Israeli control regime, about the way it's transformed over time, uh, about um, connections between Israeli violence against different populations um, in different territories. Um, I highlight certain features of the Israeli control regime, such as the way in which Israel uses uncertainty as a mode of control and what that means for Palestinians. 
Uh, I look at the place that militarism uh, plays uh, both in Israeli society and more broadly and in relation to conceptions of childhood specifically. Um, I look at what role visual images and technologies uh, play um, in what I call the visual battlefield of uh, Palestine, and maybe we can talk about that. Um, I talk about the hierarchy that Israeli authorities uh, draw between different types of evidence. Uh, and I'm really interested throughout the book in, in the interaction between these global and, and local uh, forces and how local norms, um, how global norms, sorry, affect the local reality and how, on the other hand, Palestine um, is perceived and represented abroad. Uh, so the hope is, here is really to provide insights beyond the primary um, focus of the book. So I think that's kind of a rough overview um, of the book. Hopefully that's uh, helpful kind of as, as a starting point. Yes, thank you so much. Uh, your book covers so many, so many topics. It's quite a remarkable book um, that had me engaged from beginning to end. Um, but for the sake of our audience, the SHCY listeners, um, it would be great if we could focus in now in the second part on um, childhood and um, the ways childhood is used as uh, a tool of state control. So your book does a very brilliant job of showing how age is a socially constructed category um, by showing how Israel maintains, maintains an age-based apparatus of control over Palestinians. Um, can you speak about what uh, problematizing law, rights, and childhood in Israel-Palestine says on this matter of, um, of age as a mode of state control and the social construction of age? Yeah, sure. Thanks for that. Um, I, I think in this context, I would say that the book tries to respond to and challenge and essentially dispel what I describe as uh, certain myths about childhood, both in Israel, Palestine, and more broadly. Um, so one myth, as I kind of touched on earlier, is that Israel simply disregards international norms relating to children's rights. Um, and what I try to show in the book is that Israel actually uses international law and specifically children's rights to kind of perfect and uh, legitimize its violence against, against Palestinians. Um, so that's kind of, I, I, I try to um, let this counter narrative unfold throughout uh, the book in a broad range of contexts. And another uh, myth in relation to childhood is that Israel robs Palestinians of their childhood. We hear this uh, common trope in, in human rights reports and also in some academic publications on Palestinian children. Um, but I show why this narrative is highly problematic um, for various reasons, um, uh, when Palestinians are being described as having their childhood um, stolen from them, what we're presented with is um, effectively a romanticized and essentialist conception of childhood, uh, which is insensitive to the actual social and political context. Um, 
And the book shows that the reality is actually that Israel doesn't deny childhood, but instead it imposes on Palestinians a certain model of childhood that works to their detriment. Um, and crucially, this model of childhood is enshrined in law and in human rights. So what I try to show in the book is that this legally enshrined childhood um, operates to, um, to govern Palestinians, to, to discipline them, and uh, ultimately to disempower them. Um, it's a model of childhood that helps Israeli authorities in their efforts to subjugate Palestinian minds, bodies, and interactions um, to, to discipline Palestinian adults through the young, as I mentioned earlier. Um, and I show, uh, for example, how Israel uses the language of childhood and children's rights to justify its military offensives and closure of the Gaza Strip, something that um, um, has recently um, again been at the forefront of uh, international news uh, and rightly so. Um, and, and I show how much of Israeli state violence is being presented as serving the best interest of the child, which is a legal concept, a central legal concept. And this includes the best interest of the Palestinian child. Um, so what I try to do throughout the book is reveal how childhood is effectively central to every form of um, state violence. Um, and this includes imprisonment, uh, surveillance, actual killing of Palestinians, um, travel restrictions, um, food quotas, maybe we can talk about that later, uh, the way in which Israel um, breaks Palestinian families, um, the use of uh, human shields, um, Jewish settlements, military hazing, the, the list can go on. Um, and I also try to explain why it is that children's rights and, and uh, laws that relate to children are so heavily complicit in state violence. And I touched on some of this earlier, so maybe I can exp uh, expand. Um, so one reason for this complicity in state violence is that both law and human rights, as I um, said earlier, are plastic. Uh, and what this means is that uh, they endlessly lend themselves to uh, competing uses. Um, and that's why there's nothing preventing them inherently from ending up being used as tools of uh, state violence. So I talked about this earlier, but now I want to add another reason for the complicity of uh, law and rights in state violence, and that is their insensitivity to context. Um, and the reason for that is that both law and human rights rest on certain generalizations and abstractions. And as a result, they're often applied without sensitivity to the actual context. Um, and when it comes to children's rights, there's a specific abstraction there, which is a certain model of childhood that is supposedly universal and natural. Uh, but in reality, what this 
uh, model of childhood does is that it marginalizes young people and it also paves the way for harming older people. And maybe, maybe I can talk more about this uh, because these are two core aspects of um, how childhood and age operate as forms of um, state violence, both harming children and um, adults. So maybe I can give some specific examples that are examined in the book. One example uh, is what I refer to as age segregation or generational segregation. And this is a central theme in chapter four. So I'll just start with some background. Um, listeners, even those who are not lawyers are probably, would probably not be surprised to hear that international children's rights law requires separating children from adults in prison. And in the past, most Palestinian children in Israeli um, uh, prisons were held together with Palestinian adult, adults, and they were also tried in the same military courts as these adults. And maybe we can talk about military courts later. And this uh, unsurprisingly led to very vocal criticism from uh, the human rights community. Eventually what happened is that Israel did separate Palestinian children in detention uh, facilities and prisons. And it also created uh, this legal hybrid that's called the military youth court. And what this court does is now uh, it, it tries hundreds of Palestinian children every year. What I argue in the book is that this reform hasn't benefited uh, Palestinian children. And in some respects, it actually works um, to their detriment. Um, and there are many reasons for this. Maybe I'll just mention a few. Uh, the imprisoned Palestinian adults that I'm talking about are obviously not criminals in the common sense of the word. Um, they describe themselves as political prisoners or freedom fighters. And Palestinian sources also suggest that when these adults were still being held with children, they offered them valuable support and care. Um, so for example, they provided the children with uh, emotional support, with uh, material care, with educational uh, services, none of which, by the way, Israeli authorities provide. And these Palestinian adults also represented the children's concerns to the Israeli prison staff. Um, now, considering that Palestinian children in Israel, Israeli custody rarely get to meet their family, these adults were the closest substitute to parents. So now in the name of children's rights, what's happened is that Palestinian children have been denied a crucial source of support. And beyond that, um, the separation of these children has also exposed them to greater harm because now they're no longer um, with Palestinian adults around them. And as a result, they're more vulnerable to abuse by the Israeli security agents. Um, and we know that Palestinian children, when they're released from Israeli prisons, they usually report of having been abused there. Um, and they're also now more vulnerable to Israel's attempts to recruit them as informants against their own society. Um, and they're also more likely actually to be abused by their own peers uh, because previously Palestinian adults in prisons um, 
reportedly helped the children peacefully resolve their disagreements and tensions. Now, on top of all of this, and this goes to my second point about harming adults, this generational segregation has also made it easier for Israel to narrow down the rights of Palestinian adults in prison. And the book reveals how Israeli judges presented this um, separation as a way to prevent unwanted knowledge, political knowledge transfer, especially from Palestinian adults to children in prison. Uh, so it's effectively, as I called it in one earlier publication, a divide and rule mechanism. Um, so according to Israeli judges, Palestinian adults are incorrigible, whereas for Palestinian children, there is still some hope of reform. Um, and Israeli courts have used a similar um, reasoning, rationale, to authorize the retraction of certain benefits that were previously available to Palestinian adults in prison. And these issues have parallels with um, the generational segregation of other groups in different places and times. And among them, um, we can mention uh, indigenous peoples in the US, in Australia and in Canada, Uyghurs in China, and other groups around the world throughout history. And the book kind of draws on, on some of my earlier work on, these, on parallels with these groups to continue this line of kind of more global inquiry of um, the um, kind of the, the complicity of um, discourses about children's best interests um, in state violence. Um, so that's one example. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really great example. Yeah. And you illustrate to illustrate really well what you mean by using age as a, a tool of state control. Um, the age segregation and the military youth court um, illustrates that Israel is not always necessarily denying childhoods, but instead uh, imposing a certain kind of childhood that is to children's detriment um, and that is using international law to legitimize violence against Palestinian children. Um, so let's actually then lead into the third part of the interview, which is the pitfalls of dominant discourse and practices regarding childhood and children's rights, um, which you've um, already started to, to talk about. But um, could you elaborate some more on that as you discuss in problematizing law rights and childhood in Israel and Palestine, um, what you see are the pitfalls and blind spots of dominant discourses and practices regarding childhood and children's rights today. Sure, uh, thanks. I think basically what the book shows is that these kind of, um, um, the dominant discourses and practices um, relating to childhood and children's rights specifically are both conceptually um, poor and um, politically harmful and problematic. Um, they're conceptually poor because they just treat childhood as a self-evident category that's um, uh, natural and universal. Um, and what the book tries to do is show that law and human rights don't simply regulate pre-existing children, but instead they're heavily implicated in 
the social production of childhood, they manufacture it. But these kind of discourses are also um, um, harmful um, in, in their actual effect on, especially on the uh, most disempowered uh, uh, populations. So maybe I'll try to be more concrete here. Um, earlier, for example, I, I touched on um, the way in which um, the segregation of uh, uh, the age segregation of the, the separation of children and adults in Israel uh, prisons uh, was presented as something that serves their best interests, but actually ended up harming them. Now, it's, it's crucially important to remember that this is a reform that was pushed by the human rights community and that many human rights organizations and academics still, uh, despite um, the, the increasingly evident uh, harm that this separation does to Palestinians, despite it, they continue to criticize um, whenever there's an isolated uh, instance of uh, non-separation, they, they continue to criticize it. Um, and that's because these discourses and these perceptions of what, what childhood needs to look like and what's in the best interest of children, um, they're very confined um, to, the, uh, to the model of childhood that I was talking about, so much so that they don't let the uh, specific political situation um, interfere uh, with their commitment to that uh, model of childhood. Maybe, maybe I can expand further and kind of show some other examples of how this actually uh, works. So one of the issues I talk about in chapter five is the notion of the right to childhood. And that's kind of a, a trope that recurs in uh, human rights publications. Children are being kind of repeatedly singled out as deserving of special protection. And this includes the claim that they have a right to childhood. But what I show uh, in the book is that this, um, this notion um, often um, involves justifying uh, state violence against Palestinian adults. So one example that comes to mind has to do with an Israeli NGO uh, called the Palestinian, um, uh, sorry, the, pu the Public Committee Against Torture in Israel. Um, and the NGO, um, I don't remember the exact wording they used, but they um, effectively argued that because children have the right to childhood, what this means is that there's a certain threshold for adults in which an act of abuse constitutes torture, so when it comes to children, the threshold needs to be lowered because of their right to childhood. So in other words, just to explain uh, what this means, what the NGO essentially argued is that when Palestinian adults are concerned, harsher abuse is legitimate. Now, under international law, torture is supposed to be illegal always, with no exceptions. But what we see in this example is that a distinction was being um, drawn between two levels of torture, one for children, one for adults. And uh, in this way, the, the child rights framework ends up 
condoning the torture of Palestinian adults. Um, I'll give another example, a more recent one. In the, in the COVID context, uh, the, the context of the pandemic, um, there have been a few uh, NGOs pressing for the release of Palestinian children from Israeli uh, uh, prisons during the pandemic. And one of the arguments uh, that was made there is that um, these children should be released because that would pose a minimum risk, risk for, uh, to Israeli society. So we have children being specifically singled out as a minimum risk for Israeli society. And what that does is essentially reinforce uh, what Israeli authorities constantly do, which is to um, associate uh, uh, Palestinians, especially adult Palestinian men who are Muslim men. So this speaks to a global uh, trope to associate them with terrorism, with risk. So uh, NGOs, both implicitly and ex explicitly, as I show in the book, um, end up reinforcing the Israeli narrative about Palestinians as a security risk. Um, and what the various examples uh, examined in the book essentially show is that the human rights community, and again, here I include not only NGOs, but also academics and others, are um, in many ways, in many ways, they have much more in common with Israel than is usually believed, because both of them deploy the language and mechanisms of law and human rights, including international humanitarian law and children's rights. Um, and they do so sometimes in very similar ways. Um, in the case of the human rights community, sometimes based on um, not just simplistic and problematic views about childhood, but also misunderstanding and ignorance about the situation, uh, both legally and in respect to Palestinian children's owned, own uh, lived, experience, lived experiences, as I show in the book. Um, so, so in a sense, one of the things that uh, the book tries to do is kind of provide a more nuanced and more challenging and troubling perhaps picture that goes beyond uh, binaries between kind of the state and its critics or as well as the binaries between childhood and adulthood between legal and illegal. Um, so yeah, that, that's a few thoughts about, uh, about all of that. Thank you so much. Um... Yes, your book does provide a very uh, nuanced look at um, children and the law moving beyond um, the conventional binaries of um, sort of the human rights organizations versus the state of Israel, um, but showing how they both are um, um, can have space for criticism. Um, and so, um, I would like to move on to the next question, which is about your sources and methodology. Um, so most of the evidence you employ has never been looked at before as it is not publicly available. 
could you please speak about the sources and methodology used in problematizing law, rights, and childhood in Israel-Palestine? Yeah, um, yeah, of course. Um, so just to give an overview, I think the, my sources could be divided into three groups. Um, the first one is Israeli materials um, that have to do with Palestinians in conflict with Israeli law. Um, a second group is materials concerning Israelis in conflict with the law. And that includes both Israeli settlers and soldiers. And the third group of uh, sources is human rights reports. Um, now, probably the largest of these groups um, is uh, Israeli military legal sources. Um, now, um, since uh, uh, most of our listeners are probably not lawyers or human rights uh, uh, practitioners, uh, it's worth pointing out that there's a lot of legal scholarship on Israel's control uh, of the Palestinian territory, but this scholarship consistently focuses on international law and on the Israeli Supreme Court. And as a result, what's neglected is a huge um, legal um, um, arm of the Israeli control regime, and that is the Israeli military uh, legal system, including uh, the military courts that, as I mentioned earlier, try hundreds of Palestinian children and more broadly, thousands of Palestinians every year. Um, now, this is the first book to actually examine um, and also to do that, to do so in a systematic and theoretically informed uh, way, uh, uh, to examine military uh, court judgments, uh, hundreds of judgments, as well as um, um, military statutes. And these legal sources are really invaluable because they reveal um, findings that um, not only have never been studied, but they also challenge some claims that were previously made in the uh, literature about children and childhood and law and state violence um, in Palestine. Um, now, there, there, there's, there's a reason why these documents haven't been researched uh, before. Um, the key reason is that there, there are different accessibility issues. Most uh, military judgments, the vast majority, are not publicly available. Um, Israel has a long history of making its state um, documents, especially difficult to access for non-Israelis. Now, in this sense, the fact that I am Israeli actually helped me in, in various ways to eventually get access to some of these legal documents. And I talk about that in the book, um, but it required several years uh, as well as a lot of archival work um, to actually get hold of um, uh, the documents. So there's a lot of work involved here that uh, many researchers are unable or unwilling to undertake. Another reason um, is that Israeli scholars don't really 
analyze uh, Israeli law that much because in Israel, it's not really being perceived, it's not really perceived as part of the Israeli legal system because within the Zionist imaginary, there's, there's this really convenient distinction between what happens, quote unquote, here in Israel and supposedly what happens over there in uh, the Palestinian ter territory, uh, just ignoring the fact that uh, as I show in the book, there's a lot of diffusion between the political and legal practices in uh, these different parts of Israel-Palestine, but also ignoring the crucial fact that all of the territories um, that I'm talking about are under uh, one form or another of Israeli legal control. So the Israeli military law is really crucial and that's a huge part of my sources. Um, now, in terms of the methodology, which you've also asked about, um, I try to analyze uh, these documents from, uh, and I hope that's kind of been um, apparent throughout our uh, chat so far, from an across disciplinary perspective. So trying to connect the ways in which uh, critical scholars have been thinking about childhood and state violence across different disciplines, across different areas um, of study, um, and also in terms of my methods, um, I try to combine several methods. I try to use textual analysis, um, uh, discourse analysis more, more broadly. I also explain in the book um, that I conducted quantitative analysis of about 150 um, military documents, and I provide the findings of that analysis, but also to contextualize my findings, I draw on a broad range of secondary sources, Palestinian sources, uh, to some extent settler so sources, um, in order to really be able to um, uh, anchor um, and, and kind of um, illustrate my arguments in like more broadly in the, um, in the uh, local uh, socio-political uh, context. Um, maybe one, one last thing that I could mention in this regard and has to do with uh, my methodology is that I try to look at what I call um, knowledge governing forces. So the forces that basically control what can be said and known and seen in relation to childhood and state violence in Israel-Palestine. So. For that reason, when I analyze my sources, I try to look not only on what, at what they say and seem to present, but also at what they seem to conceal or deny or decontextualize. Um, and one example of that is the military judgments that uh, I've mentioned, um, because in, in chapter two, I really um, um, explain in detail that one of the remarkable things about uh, military judgments is that even though they usually send Palestinian uh, children to Israeli prison, um, they're very short, the judgments. There's uh, very little um, uh, justification. Um, and even the supposed record in the files of what happened uh, in the court doesn't really reflect what actually happens in the courtroom, as I know having myself observed courtroom uh, hearings. Um, so this tells us this, this omission, this concealment, perhaps uh, intentional or not, 
tells us something about um, the military legal system, how it's allowed to operate as it does, um, its self-ethos. Uh, that's one example. Another brief uh, example is visual images, which is something I look at uh, in chapter six. And I try to kind of problematize or challenge the way in which we think about visibility and invisibility in images. I try to call into question um, our assumptions about what's good visual evidence and what's weaker visual uh, evidence. And I try to offer competing readings of uh, visual materials in order to kind of um, um, question the relationship or um, yeah, the relationship really between visibility and invisibility. So I think questions of um, uh, silence, omissions, uh, visibility, knowledge are really central to the way in which I uh, approach my sources. And, and that approach and that methodology is also part of the arguments of the book. It's part of the, the story that the, uh, that the book tells. Um, thank you so much. This has been so wonderful. Um, it's just a brilliant book. And um, there's so, so much into it. And I encourage everyone to read it and read it closely. Um, if you want to say just um, with a few minutes that remain, anything about your intellectual journey or your inspiration that led you to write the book, um, we'd be happy to hear. Uh, yeah, it feels like there's so much to be said. Uh, but maybe briefly I can say, um, so I'm formally a legal scholar, but I come to law from a very interdisciplinary training. Um, and I had I, kind of the intellectual journey, as you call it, um, involved many stages. But I think um, some of the things that brought me to undertake this uh, project um, one of them is really um, that as, as someone interested in law, I was really um, uh, disturbed almost by how under-theorized and under-criticized childhood as a category has been in, especially in legal and human rights discourses, both within and outside the academia, especially compared to other um, identity categories such as um, um, race, gender, sexuality, uh, disability. Um, so I felt there's like there's a lot of work that needs to be done there in conversation uh, with thinking about law and state violence in order to bring childhood and adulthood to the forefront of our critical thinking about uh, categories. But also in this particular um, uh, political context, um, I think part of my motivation is that um, I, uh, I was disturbed by both how theoretically some of the narratives, including the narratives that um, are seen as critical, are actually often very limited uh, and simplistic, and also how huge areas of law and politics simply haven't been researched despite the huge importance and, and uh, consequences. So I would say that kind of the combination of this interest and desire to problematize childhood in a, in a, as a category 
as well as wanting to um, kind of um, make a unique contribution to both theory and our um, empirical findings about the situation, the, the specific situation in uh, Palestine, I think all of those were part of my journey kind of to and through uh, this project. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, and you can really feel that passion and that intellectual rigor all the way through the book um, in regards to um, thinking about children in childhood in ways that um, scholars just have not done yet or haven't given the time to. So I really hope that um, the listeners will, um, from all different disciplines, history, sociology, the law, um, they can engage with your book and um, take the conversation forward and in new directions about what is childhood, what is the law, what is children's rights, these um, topics we just generally take for granted and are not problematizing. Um, so I'd just like to give you one more thank you um, for joining us and thank you to the Social History of Children and Youth um, for having this venue for in uh, interviews with um, new and cutting edge books. And once again, um, the book is by Cambridge University Press, and it's called Problematizing Law, Rights, and Childhood in Israel-Palestine. It's the culmination of 14 years of very diligent work and um, insider's perspective that uh, most of us would not be able to get into these military courts. So um, thank you so much. And, thank you, Heidi. Um, thank you. Um, best of luck thank in you. your future work. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.